Well, as Ryan noted, I'm an astronomer, but I'm an astronomer that actually doesn't know which end of the telescope to look through. Uh, this is not wholly a consequence of technical incompetence, although there's a large dash of that in it as well, but it's a consequence of the fact that my graduate training and my subsequent 30 years of research has not been in looking at the universe through the incredibly narrow window of what we parochially call light. The temperature of the surface of the sun and the strength of gravity on the surface of the earth has combined with 400 million years of evolution uh, to allow us to develop something we call our eyes, which we think are really important uh, and which provide us an enormous amount of information about the world around us and for an astronomer about the sky above. But it turns out this is a really poor tool because it only samples a little less than an octave, a little less than a range of a factor of two in wavelengths of the factor of 50 octaves of radiation that the universe is sending us. We're 98% blind to what the universe is telling us if we use our eyes or the biggest telescope we can use on Earth, which just focuses that same narrow single octave of light down so we can see it better with our eye or with some electronic camera. Now, since I've been working in this field for a very long time, I've given innumerable public talks and, of course, now, as of this semester, 29 years worth of lectures to Columbia undergraduates. And one of the first things I have to do in any such talk or any such class is to get across this point, that we have an incredibly impoverished view of the universe because our eyes are such lousy receptors, they pick up only 2% of the radiation that is being sent to us. And for the first 20-some years of doing this, I always say, just imagine how bad that is. I mean, your ears at least can hear 10 octaves of the scale. And so if you listen to music, you hear 10 full octaves. Imagine if your ears were so lousy that they only picked out one octave, like that. And I, so I would give the analogy. Imagine you're listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and you could only hear a single octave at a time, you know, the 448 to the 888. What would it sound like? Well, shortly after Frank introduced me to Ryan, I told him this story, and he said, oh, well, we can probably do something about that. And this is what we did. We took the Ode to Joy. Uh, he found, within a couple of days, a clever graduate student in the... Uh, electronic Music School up in Prentice. Uh, we went over to the lab, we took our little CD of Beethoven's Ninth, we used the software. In an hour, we had produced this. We call it Hellfans Ninth Symphony. This is what you normally hear, from the piccolos to the basses, the entire ten octaves. But now I'm going to put a filter on it electronically that gives you just one octave at a time. So all the music's still there, but I filtered it the same way your eye filters the light from space from the 440A to the one above. Right now, I'll take a different slice of the spectrum. So that's just the octave below that. You're hearing only single octave at a time. And clearly, it doesn't sound very much like the Ode to Joy. You can recognize it, but listen to this. That's six octaves below what you normally could hear. And then, if we jump a few octaves above, all the same music, it's just filtered in this clever way. It sounds like a bunch of angry crickets, right? Not like a symphony orchestra. Uh, what you actually want to hear is this, where your ear hears the full ten octaves at once, and so you can now see how hopelessly impoverished our view of the universe is if we only use our eye. Well, it took a few hours for that 20-year-old analogy to turn into something that everybody could use. I've used this in my class ever since. A few months after we made this, I gave a plenary talk at the American Physical Society, so this was, you know, a thousand physicists, PhD physicists. This got a standing ovation, and I must have had 400 requests to have this so they could use it in their class to get across this idea in such a dramatic way. 
And subsequently, I put it on my website, and I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people have now heard this creation that just came about from a casual conversation of someone technically incompetent with someone technically competent, mainly Ryan. Uh, as a consequence of that, I mean, finding competence in Columbia University is a very rare thing, uh, we decided that maybe we'd try to exploit this for other bigger ideas. Uh, in 1982, as a matter of fact, which is a general measure of how long it takes things to get done here, I chaired a committee uh, called Science in a Liberal Curriculum, which was to address the question, which I thought was rather a nagging one, that we had a core curriculum in Columbia College, every student taking the same course, reading the same book the same week, which covered history and philosophy, literature, art, and music, and with that range of subjects, claimed to prepare intelligent citizens for life in a modern world. Well, it seemed to me something was missing there. Uh, also, this curriculum, of course, is supposed to be the great ideas of Western civilization, and I was frequently want to point out that the only unique great idea of Western civilization, in that every culture has a literature and a music and an art, was Western science, that the core curriculum of Columbia College really had a fundamental lack in that it did not include science as part of the heart of the general education that we offer. Well, so this committee in 1982 recommended that we do something about that, and uh, 22 years later, uh, we actually managed to succeed. That's probably because in 1982 there wasn't any center for new media teaching and learning, and being technically incompetent, it wasn't conceivable how one would do this. In fact, there are no other universities in the country that we know of, with the exception of St. John's, uh, where science is taught together with a group in the core of knowledge that everyone is supposed to know. Now at St. John's they do this in a way we didn't think we could implement here. They learn Greek so they can read uh, the original mathematics. They learn Latin so they can read Newton's Principia. Uh, and we didn't think that was probably a good approach to science in the modern world. We wanted to do something that was a little more modern. And so we came up with this idea over 20 years or so of a course called Frontiers of Science, which would be required of all first year students at Columbia to expose them to science at the same time they would be exposed to Plato and Homer and, and art and music of the West. Now, there's a major challenge in this enterprise because we are dealing, if we're teaching all Columbia undergraduates at once, first year students, with literally, last year at least, the National Intel Science Competition winner and people who can't do arithmetic. Now, putting them in the same classroom, the same lecture, the same seminars, giving them the same reading materials is clearly a challenge. Furthermore, providing a class for 550 students at once uh, and organizing that uh, is also considerably a challenge. And so the center and, and, uh, was an obvious place to turn to start developing some of these ideas. The first thing you might want to say, if you're going to teach a general science course, what are you going to use as a textbook? Well, we had two ideas for that. One is we didn't want to teach a, an overview of you know, 19th century chemistry and 17th century physics, which is the way one normally starts science in college, frankly, because it's boring. And so what we wanted to do is, rather than that, go to the forefronts of science, go to the, the places where we don't yet know all the answers, and teach students about what the exciting research areas were today. Furthermore, we wanted them to come away with some basic quantitative reasoning skills, some scientific habits of mind, as we call them, uh, that they can apply not only to this course, but also to decisions they have to make throughout their lives. And so the first thing we did was to create a book called Scientific Habits of Mind, but that would serve as sort of a, a, an underlaying of the course with all of the technical tools students would need while we were telling them about all the exciting science. I mean, if we gave them lectures on statistics, they'd all go to sleep, but it's essential to understand statistics if one is going to critically evaluate scientific papers of the kind that we give them. And so this book 
rather than being on paper, is of course on the web. Um, Ryan used a, something they developed earlier for art history, I guess it was, was it? Um, to, uh, to develop this book online. Now, how do we use this to address this wide gap in the previous preparation of our students? We created two kinds of links. One kind of link is the huh link. That comes when an equation appears. Well, for most people, that equation wouldn't be too scary. But for some of our undergraduates, believe it or not, it is. So at the end of the equation, there's a huh. And when there's a ha, you can go over here and go back just about as far as eighth grade, I guess, in mathematics, and get a full and thorough review of canceling units, of scientific notation, of how to, how to range num numbers in an equation. Now, many of our students, that's pretty straightforward. They know how to do that already. They're reading this book, but they come across a statement like, uh, the eye can no longer, the width of one quarter of a strand of hair is too, full, too small for you to see. What is it that sets the practical limit of vision for the human mind. So that's an interesting question. And so you type the Y link because you want to know more. Why is this the limit? Your vision is limited by two numbers, which at first seem completely unrelated, the temperature of the surface of the sun and the strength of gravity on the surface of the Earth. And we go on to a, a deep story, which includes, among other things, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony as recorded by me. Okay. And so you see we can go back, we can go drill into much deeper and richer material for the students who is interested, and yet we have the tutorials readily available in the context of the text for the students who are not. Uh, we have chapters on a number of things, graphical representation of data, why in that table of numbers was completely opaque, but this graph led to a major discovery. So we have lots of graphics in here about how to graph things and different kinds of illustrations, teaching them, for example, that images are in fact actually graphs because they're all digital now and how these are constructed and they learn a lot about that. Uh, we also do probability, we do statistics. We have a book and this book is, among other things, free to the students because it's all online, it's all self-contained, it's heavily linked and the students have access to this both with tutorials they need if they're weak and for enriched material if they're not. Now managing this course in general is rather a, uh, a daunting task and so we go to the coursework site. I'm going to use last semesters as an example. Um, what do we provide on the site for our students? So we see we have 540 students registered for this course. Uh, right away on the introductory page, we of course provide the link to the book so they can go directly to Scientific Habits of Mind. But we provide a lot else for the students as well. This course works in that 11 o'clock on Monday morning, all 540 students show up in Miller Theater for a highly polished, we hope, a lecture by one of the senior faculty on one of the four subjects that we'll be covering during each semester. Uh, in the fall, for example, we covered um, the discovery of planets around other stars, the functional, how functional MRI imaging helps one understand the way the brain connects to human behavior, global, rapid global climate change, the paleoclimatological record and the potential future for climate change on Earth, and the biodiversity crisis of Earth. Those are the sort of contemporary subjects we're covering. The students come into this lecture, and they can come into the lecture with the PowerPoint slides laid out before them because we provide, in three different formats, the slides for them in advance. And so they can take the lectures, they can take the slides, print them in a friendly format of eight slides per page, and bring them to lecture to write notes on. The first question was, how many planets are there in this picture? The surprising answer is a very large number at the end of the lecture, 10 to the 16th is the number. So. 
the students have the lectures available to them for each of the classes before the class begins so they can have the slides and take notes on them. They found that very convenient. We discovered this by actually weren't giving the lecture notes to the students, but we were printing them out for ourselves to take notes on. Because one of the aspects of this course is that, of course, I have to teach neuroscience and climate change and biodiversity, as well as my field of astrophysics, and everybody else does too. So this is quite an experience for the faculty as well. Uh, in addition, everything else for the class is also done online. So for example, we have a large number of class files. Each week, uh, there's a class file corresponding to the subject and lecture. So for example, the second astronomy seminar unit here has several required readings, which are instantly uh, downloada downloadable. Some of them are readings from Scientific American or American Scientist. Some of them are readings from Nature or Science, the real papers themselves, which we annotate with little sticky notes. Some of them are articles from the popular press, which we then sometimes compare to the original article published in a journal to see how the press is done. Um, so the class files provide all of the reading material for the class, all of the assignments for the class, of which there's one due every week. And uh, as a consequence, the entire class is totally free uh, to the students. Now let me go back and show you. That's, so the lecture, the lecture has uh, this one set of, of 540 students in the course. But each course, each, the second meeting each week is in a 20-student seminar consistent with the core curriculum notion that teaching with faculty in small classes is the way to go. And so in my seminar, I have information uh, directly about the way I evaluate students and things like that. But we also, importantly, have a discussion board. And the discussion board, which I must confess I was skeptical of, turned out to be extremely valuable because what I'll do is each week I'll post some discussion question. And then the students, by 8 a.m. of the day of the seminar, have to respond. And so, number one, I can see what they understand and what they don't. Number two, we get some pretty vigorous debates going, because some of these discussion questions are uh, controversial, like, should we join the Kyoto Protocol uh, because greenhouse gases are going to destroy the climate of Earth? Uh, and the students get to argue back and forth and, and state their positions and come to class much better prepared to have a, a, a rigorous discussion. I, I, so every week, there's a discussion like that. Now, it's not just for the students that this is valuable and totally free. It's also for the faculty. Uh, any of you who has in the past taught with a large number of other faculty in a single course, not something we do very often, sort of interestingly here. Um, but in this case, we're talking about 10 or 12 senior faculty and 11 postdoctoral fellow lecturers. And so what we do is have a separate website in, in, inside the coursework system for developing the course. And this course develops in real time every week because, in fact, science develops in real time. The lectures from last year are, have to be updated for this year. The problems that we set for the students, the discussion questions, the readings, all get updated. And so we, what we do is we have a set of class files uh, that are accessible to all of the faculty and include, for example, the answers to the questions we set for the students <laughs> since they're outside of our field. We don't always know them, so that's really helpful. Uh, but more important, we have this discussion board uh, which allows us to discuss anything from just general aspects of the course, grading policies, uh, seminar ideas, other resources that people come across, an article in the Science Times this week referred to last week's lecture, isn't that cool, give it out to your students, to under each seminar, uh, what exactly was the weekly individual assignment, who assigned what, how it worked for them, how the discussion question worked for them, and then last but not least, developing the finalized, final exam. So here we go. The final exam questions were coordinated by one of our lecturers. 
He said, you know, send me your final exam questions. The construction of this exam is a non-trivial undertaking each semester. And right here we have each person submitting interesting ideas for questions for the final exam, which we can then stitch together largely online and get together and minimize the number of meetings we have. In summary, I think it's fair to say that this course is a significant new uh, contribution to Columbia's general education. It offers its students. It's the first example we know of of a true general edu education course required of, of everyone. Uh, and we have uh, hopes to export this rather significantly. Uh, my co-director Darcy Kelly here and I were on Science Friday on NPR a couple of weeks ago and got literally hundreds of requests for some of these materials from high school teachers, community college teachers, professors, students, random people from around the country who happen to hear us on this show. I'm, I'm sure this would be valuable for many people. But what I want to conclude by saying is that without the, well support's the wrong word, support an active collaboration and contribution of ideas, uh, it's very unlikely that we would have managed to produce a product like this for our students. There's a final aspect of, of doing some experiment like this, and we have actually a five-year experiment underway to see if this course actually is valuable, and that's evaluation. And evaluation is something which, well, university faculty are, want to do, right? They assign little grades. At Columbia, they're all A's, so it doesn't really matter very much, um, to students at the end of the semester. They rarely, rarely evaluate whether what they're doing is effective. They rarely evaluate whether the curriculum they're offering and the style in which they're offering it actually has an impact on the student's ability to reason and their basic knowledge base. And so evaluation is something else which the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning has a lot of expertise in. And Matt Ryan, maybe you want to say a couple words about what we're doing to evaluate this enterprise. Sure. Uh, obviously, it's a big challenge to evaluate a course with over 500 students uh, distributed over 28 sections, I think, of seminar. Uh, so. Uh, Alina's nodding her head, so I think I got that right. Uh, so what we've done, uh, at least to start off with, is uh, besides being heavily involved in the weekly faculty meetings and evaluating uh, the postings that are here week to week and, and consolidating them for uh, subsequent years, uh, we also developed uh, online surveys for students to fill out at the end of the term. And again, we use CourseWorks to do that. Uh, probably the most interesting or maybe it's puzzling finding from the, from the first year of doing uh, the survey was that students rated the lectures and the seminars higher than they rated the course overall. So, what else is there? <laughs> so uh, to just say a little more about that, the, they held the lectures in pretty high regard. They held their seminar leaders in even higher regard. So we decided to uh, address that by uh, making the course in the second year even more seminar-centric, if you will, or more seminar-focused. So, uh, some of the changes that we implemented based on the survey were to uh, have basically all the communication, all the assignments for the course come from the seminar leaders so that from the student's point of view uh, that that 20-person uh, that group and that leader is really the person that they go to as their, as their instructor for this course and that's the real focus of their attention. The other thing we did to address uh, the large lecture, which is unique at Columbia, there's not another course that has this number of students uh, all together all at once, was to break the lecture up with some question and answer uh, uh, during the lecture, even with that large uh, size group, and also to require students at the end of the lecture to submit a question to their seminar leader on their way out the door. The, that's a nice way of linking what's going on in the lecture to the seminar because each seminar leader has a stack of questions about that lecture in which to guide uh, their session that they're going to hold later that week. Uh, we saw, at least this last fall, a great increase in 
attendance and engagement by adding that uh, this fall. Uh, and I think we'll, uh, you know, again, we're still waiting for some fall uh, evaluation results from this year to come in, but I'm confident that we're going to see uh, even more improvement as we continue to do this. And again, this is an ongoing process. As David said, it's a five-year uh, project to uh, bring this uh, to the standard that the core curriculum has. Did I leave anything out, David? No, I just no. want to say another thing about the lecture questions. I don't remember if that was your idea, but it was a brilliant idea. Uh, to have the student jot down a question the lecture stimulated. The other great virtue of this is that after the lecture each Monday, we have a staff meeting to discuss uh, the, the, what we're going to do in seminar that week. And you see all the faculty frantically reading through their lecture questions because they're not going to know the answers to some of them and they want to ask the lecturer uh, while they're there. In any event, to conclude, I just say that it, it really is inconceivable to me, having had this idea in 1982, seeing it take 20 years to come into fruition, uh, it just wouldn't have happened without the Center for New Media Teaching and Learning and their active collaboration in this process. And so I would encourage any of you that has even an idea this big uh, uh, or as small as slicing up Beethoven's Ninth uh, to contact this organization because I think they've made an enormous difference in the ability of faculty at this university to deliver truly unique educational experiences and content for our students.